This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, I'm Ella Mills, the host of the Delicious Ella podcast. We all know that navigating health and wellbeing can at times be incredibly confusing. So each week we break it down for you, talking to the experts about what really matters and what actually really doesn't. From the myths that surround the way that we eat, to body image, the power of meditation and mindfulness, relationships, finding genuine happiness, gut health, sleep, and mental health. Join us on the Delicious Yellow podcast for a little bit of inspiration every Tuesday on your favorite podcast platforms, Acast, Apple, and Spotify. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Today, after a short break, we're returning to our series of Heredity Editor interviews. And in this episode, we hear from one of our newest editors. We'll find out about the development of his research career, his thoughts on what makes a good paper submission, and why he thinks it's valuable for early career researchers to travel far and wide in search of new skills and ideas. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can we just start by having you introduce yourself? Well, thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Rui Faria. I'm a researcher at uh, CBO. It's a research center in biodiversity and genetic resources in Portugal. And I'm also still affiliated to the University of Sheffield, where I spent the last two years. And I just became associate editor in Heredity in, in May 2019. So I'm really young on this task, but it has been a great experience for me, actually. Oh, fantastic. Well, welcome to the Heredity team. Um, And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But first of all, it'd be nice to kind of get an idea for the kind of research that you do yourself. And one of the reasons that I'm actually really excited to have you on the podcast is that you work on snails. And I am a bit of a snail fan. Um, So I wonder if you could just tell us what it is that your research focuses on. Yes. So, I mean, contrary to most the researchers I know in biology, I think I'm not so driven by an organism or a specific species that I'm passionate about. I'm more um, a process person. So I'm very interested on how adaptation and speciation occurs and the underlying process. So in during my PhD, I started to work on fishes, actually. But at the end, I was looking for um, a system where I could try some of the questions I had in mind. And I spent actually the first stages of my first postdoc trying to find the ideal system for the questions I had. And there were several, of course, but one that caught my interest was the marine snails of the genus Litorina, where several people have been working on in the past. And there was somehow a niche that I could occupy and contribute to the community. So among the questions that I was most interested at that time related with adaptation and speciation was particularly in the role of chromosomal inversions in those processes. So I mean, I guess when you're talking about these inversions, what is the importance of these in biology? Their importance has been noticed actually from the beginning of genetics, probably with uh, Dobzhansky and co-workers. I'm specifically interested in one one aspect of inversions, which is the one that they 
I mean, uh, recombination is suppressed in individuals that are heterozygous for an inversion. And this has important consequences when we think about adaptation and speciation, because it basically is a way to keep some combinations of alleles together without being breaking up by recombination, which if they carry some alleles at different levels that are favorable in a given environment, this can facilitate uh, adaptation and speciation. So when I think about these marine snails and they live in the, in the intertidal, this is a very abrupt environment. So it goes from strong waves to, in the upper part, less, let's say, less waves, uh, less humidity, more desiccation. And so you have these tidal levels changing every day and through the year. So we thought if we can um, study an organism that has low dispersal capacity, because the particular thing about these snails is that they have internal fertilization. They don't, they don't have a larvae phase, so uh, they tend to stay around the places where they were born. So this was exactly the setup where we think that adaptation or even speciation can occur in such a small geographic scale for humans. And so we thought this would be an interesting model. But when I start, I didn't know if inversions would have a role at all in, in the evolution of this system. We know that in some species of these snails, like with Trinus sexatilis, in different locations, they tend to evolve different necotypes adapted to different parts of the shore in an independent manner uh, in different places. So we didn't know nothing about inversions, but when, I mean, mainly collaborating and or working with Professor Roger Butlin at the University of Sheffield, and together also with Chelsea Johansson in the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, it's when we started to have access to genomic data and then starting to realize there's probably several inversions in, that are polymorphic in this system. And then this revealed itself as the system that I was looking for to test the role of inversions in evolution, because as there are many populations carrying these inversions that somehow evolve independently. We have these many replicates to study evolution, so it makes it really fantastic system to study this. Of course, what I'm saying about the discovery of, of inversions is very recent, in the last two years. So we are basically in the middle of a process that, well, we have many follow-up questions, and we're trying now to trying to understand their contribution in more detail. So there's a lot to do. We just basically open, I'll not say a Pandora box, but, <laughs> uh, but, but something that, that we are all excited and trying to understand, basically, in different lands in, in, in Europe, actually. Yeah, excellent. I mean, it does sound really interesting from an evolutionary and genetic point of view. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the papers that come as you answer some of these questions. But I, I wonder... For you personally, why is this work important? I mean, what always fascinated me was trying to understand how is all of this biodiversity generated. And I know that most people working in conservation, there is a, or researchers are passionate about trying to keep some species or populations uh, alive, let's say, through time. I'm interested in that aspect on biodiversity, but on a different angle, which is not how we maintain it, but how is it generated. I understand and I fully agree with the needs to conserve uh, species, but it would also be important if we understand how species are generated, that we can try to conserve not only a species, but 
let's say, a region or the conditions that allow evolution to occur naturally, not just that specific species. Yeah, no, I think that is probably something that quite a lot of people listening will be able to relate to. And actually, quite a lot of the people who are publishing in Heredity probably have a sort of very similar drive as you do on that. Um, And that actually, I guess, might be quite a nice time to kind of start talking about your role here at Heredity, because you said that you've only recently joined. So I wonder if you could tell us what it is that kind of pulled you onto the editorial board here. Uh, Yes, so it was a bit anecdotal. It was just uh, one of my collaborators had to give up a task, basically, uh, nothing related to heredity. And he basically recommended me to Barbara. From my side, I also tried to ask for advice for more senior um, researchers trying to understand if this would be good for for both heredity and me. And um, yeah, I only um, received positive opinions about heredity and about the efficiency from Barbara and and Sandra, actually, in the way they run the the journal. And that was actually all true. So after thinking if, if I would have the time to make my best on this, I thought it would be the time for me to be in the other side and learn with all this process and at the same time contribute for the peer reviewing process, which is, I think, the basis of the system to give credibility to to the research we publish. Yeah, definitely. And it's nice to hear uh, what you're saying there about Barbara and Sandra. We hear that quite a lot and they run a tight ship. And I like I know this is your first editorial position, so I wonder if since starting this, you've learned anything about the publishing process that you think is good for people to know if they're thinking about publishing to heredity. Uh, yes, I, th- I think there are at least a couple of things that we as authors, we basically know it, but I think it's good that people remember us and highlight some aspects that may be important. And one of those is to think when we are writing or planning how to write and where to submit it, to think on the broader picture. We have our experiment in our system or um, something we did to try to answer some question, but often this question is is really related with the system specifically that we are working. And in reality, mainly, it's good to think on what else people not working in the system can learn. And if we can somehow generalize, that would be great because I think that's um, what heredity wants and is interested on. And of course, I mean, then it's a bit of the basics, trying to be careful with the right thing, not just think that, yeah, nobody will care much about it. I think it's an important component of publishing papers is to be at least very clear and understandable. Which I understand it's not easy for mainly for non-English speakers, but I think it's about to show that effort. We understand the difficulties and we we also face them, but showing interest and care about making the best as possible makes us also trying to help as much the, the authors in improving their manuscript when, when we are giving feedback and, and the, the review is the same. I mean, sometimes it, the impression that some authors could have done better in that aspect is a bit frustrating. It's not a reason to reject the paper, of course, but I think it makes us all a more um, keen to help when um, everyone is trying their best all sides. So I think 
would be my advice. Yeah, definitely. And you can see that in heredity papers where they do have these sort of general messages that communicated really well and working with the editors, it's really clear to see how passionate they are about helping people get the most from their papers. And I guess the last thing that I wanted to ask you really is that part of this series is to get to know what drives our editors a bit more. So why are they so passionate about helping people and doing what they do? Um, so I wonder what it is that you are most passionate about in your work. So if there's anything that you are like particularly keen on advocating in research culture or more broadly. Um, yes. When I started, I think the, the conditions in Portugal were not as good as they are now to the research and the level and the support you had, the experience from your peers was not the same as now, I think. Everything changed a lot when lots of Portuguese researchers, students moved to other countries to do their own PhDs or postdocs and came back and they brought the know-how of how to do certain things. And one of the things I always tried is that to promote discussion um, in the lab, in the groups where I belong to, but also across different groups within labs and even among labs. Because um, I think without those interactions where we can have people with different minds and different backgrounds and even slightly different personalities, we can only benefit from that. Because um, not only you learn about some technical stuff, but you can also learn about interactions. And, and I think that helps to build a, a better society, a better informed society. So I tried always to promote everywhere I was. I was probably organizing always the seminar series um, I have a couple of conferences I organize with that same goal, which is trying to bring people here to Portugal in areas that we are not so advanced, but that our students and, and postdocs can learn from or establish collaboration so that we can progress and work in the front line as, as in other countries. So I think try to dedicate um, some time to this. Yeah. No, oh, that's fantastic. And I guess that knowledge exchange is, I guess, the core of science and what we're trying to do at Heredity as well. And I think that's a really lovely thought to end on. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and the people listening to the Heredity podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Rui for sharing his thoughts with us. Communication really is key in science. And if you're feeling inspired to communicate your work through Heredity, you can find out how to do that on our website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. And talking of communicating science, let's hear what Katarni's been up to over on the Genetics Unzip podcast. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we tell the stories of two women. One, a scientist fascinated by dancing mice. The other, a seamstress with a deadly family legacy, who both made significant contributions to our understanding of cancer as a disease driven by genetic changes, paving the way for life-saving screening programmes for families. Maud Sly was a cancer pathologist who dedicated her career to studying patterns of cancer inheritance in more than 150,000 mice and was even nominated for a Nobel Prize. Running parallel to Sly's work in mice was the research carried out by Aldred Worthen, a doctor working at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. One day, in 1895, a chance meeting between Worthen and a local seamstress, Pauline Gross, set the two of them off on a 25-year-long quest to understand why so many members of Pauline's family had died from cancer at a young age. 
Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I love the spotlight Genetics Unzipped places on underappreciated women scientists. It's really great to hear their stories, so please do go and give it a listen. But that's us for today. Please subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on the podcast platform of your choice. And give us a follow on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, I'm Ella Mills, the host of the Delicious Yellow podcast. We all know that navigating health and well-being can at times be incredibly confusing. So each week we break it down for you, talking to the experts about what really matters and what actually really doesn't. From the myths that surround the way that we eat, to body image, the power of meditation and mindfulness, relationships, finding genuine happiness, gut health, sleep and mental health. Join us on the Delicious Yellow podcast for a little bit of inspiration every Tuesday on your favourite podcast platforms, Acast, Apple and Spotify. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.